0: The following program on KPFK is pre-recorded.
1: Welcome to Sojourner Truth. Thank you for staying with us. This is your host, Margaret Prescott. In 1979, the people of Nicaragua overthrew the U.S.-backed dictatorship of Anastasio Somoza. The Somoza family dictatorship ruled Nicaragua from 1937 until 1979, when the Sandinista National Liberation Front liberated the country from their rule. Upon taking power, the Sandinistas vowed to free their country from the grip of U.S. control and prioritize the needs of poor people ahead of foreign corporations. Since then, The people of Nicaragua have faced constant attacks from wall hawks in Washington, D.C. This in an effort to topple the democratically elected Sandinista government and to impose a pro-U.S. government. During the 1980s, the U.S. armed and trained counter-revolutionary forces known as the Contras, in neighboring Honduras. Not only did the Contras kill supporters of the Sandinistas and carry out terrorist attacks in Nicaragua, they also helped smuggle drugs from South America into the United States, uh, including in South Los Angeles, destroying black and brown communities at home. Although the Sandinistas lost an election in 1980 that temporarily removed them from power, they eventually came back in 2006 after another democratic election. Since 2006, the United States has continued to attempt to destabilize and overthrow the Sandinista government. This time, however, instead of using brute force and armed drug gangs, They're using soft power and Western aligned organizations that all claim to promote human rights. Millions of US government and corporate dollars are spent on three Nicaraguan organizations and Amnesty International and other global organizations produce unbalanced and unsubstantiated reports which malign Nicaragua. These reports portray Nicaragua as a country that needs to be saved from alleged human rights abuses committed by the government. However, as you will hear, many of these reports are far from the truth and have more sinister intentions. Today, we bring you audio from a recent webinar entitled How U.S. Unconventional Warfare in Nicaragua Utilizes Human Rights Organizations. The webinar, hosted by the Alliance for Global Justice, examines the role played by international and local human rights organizations within U.S.-supported destabilization efforts in Nicaragua. During today's program, you will hear presentations delivered by Camilo Mejia and John Perry. Camilo Mejia is a Nicaraguan analyst and writer residing in the United States, who is a former Amnesty International prisoner of conscience. John Perry is a longtime investigator, writer, and resident of Nicaragua. We live in a global world, we're all interrelated, so on Sojourner Truth, we work to bring directly to you news and views on local, national, and international policies and stories that affect us all. And we draw out how those of us most impacted women, communities of color, and other communities are responding. We also discuss the interrelationship between art and politics. This is Margaret Prescott, host of Sojourner Truth. Now we kick off a Sojourner Truth special on U.S. unconventional warfare in Nicaragua. During the first half of today's program, you will hear a presentation by Camilo Mejia. Camilo is a Nicaraguan analyst and writer residing in the United States, who is a former Amnesty International prisoner of conscience. He delivered his remarks during a recent webinar hosted by the Alliance for Global Justice. Let us hear from him now.
0: Thank you everyone for being here. Um, Very happy, very glad that we have so many participants um, attending this very important webinar uh, because what is going on right now, uh, not only is critical uh, to every Nicaraguan citizen and the people of Nicaragua, but it also is connected to a much larger Uh, scheme uh, being conducted by human rights organizations that have been um, instrumentalized to facilitate regime change in countries where uh, the governments do not adhere to neoliberal policies and are not allied with uh, NATO powers. Um, So I'd like to start um, with a little bit of background on myself. I am from Nicaragua, as Barbara said. I am the son of Sandinistas. And I first migrated to the United States during the dictatorship um, at a time when the Sandinistas had delivered a, a pretty strong blow to the dictatorship. And as a result, there was a lot of uh, disbanding of the um, a lot of the, the Sandinista cells that were uh, as insurgents uh, inside of Nicaragua. So I came to the United States and basically learned to walk and talk here Uh, my grandmother um, had been a US citizen for many years. um, So I've had a link to the United States from basically since birth. Uh, After that, we went to Costa Rica uh, when I was about a year old and my mother continued to be a Sandinista um, operator uh, during the dictatorship uh, from Costa Rica and remained in that position until the overthrow of Somoza and at that time we returned to Nicaragua we were there for the first phase or what we're now calling the first phase of the Sandinista revolution and then when we lost the election to a US supported coalition of oligarchs and bourgeoisie parties uh, we went back to Costa Rica which is my mom's native country and then from there we migrated to the US where after finishing high school and dropping out of college after two semesters I joined the US military I did my three and a half years of active duty service as an infantryman in the U.S. Army, and then transferred to the National Guard of Florida, and came to the end of my my military contract and my my my, my college uh, program, my my um, bachelor's degree, when I became subject to a stop-loss order, which basically gave President George W. Bush the ability to, to keep uh, military personnel beyond their contract. And thus, I ended up in Iraq rather than graduating um, from college. This was in 2003. And while in Iraq, uh, while I had been uh, critical of the reasons that led to war, I had not really had the courage to stand up and say that this was a, a war that was oil driven and illegal. Uh, but once we arrived in Iraq and I saw the reality uh, that we were not only seeing but being an active part of as com- combat soldiers, I began to, uh, to refuse orders and to get in trouble with my chain of command, eventually being sent back home on a two-week furlough, at which time I decided not to return to Iraq, but to rather um, speak out against the war and refuse to go back to, to the war publicly which basically uh, prompted Amnesty International to adopt me as a prisoner of conscience and launch an international, an international campaign to secure my, my, um, my safety and my release. Um, the campaign was not successful in that I was still found guilty and sent to jail for, uh, on a 12-month sentence. I, I served nine months in a federal uh, military jail. And then I got out. And in part because of Amnesty International's Campaign, I was very well known and I became very active with a lot of leading anti war organizations, including Veterans for Peace, Iraq Veterans Against the War, uh, some faith based organizations, and other groups, and um, began to basically um, speak out against the war based on my personal experience and then also on um, analysis of the war that was uh, provided by the, the ecosystem of activists who had basically uh been uh to the Vietnam War mostly, but also to the Gulf War and even as as far back as the Korean War and World War II. So um I became very active. I wrote a book about my experience. And then um I, you know, I I have been active ever since. In 2018, in April of 2018, when I first saw what was happening in Nicaragua, my first reaction was that uh, the government had um, chosen a a pretty bad policy that was hurting Nicaragua's retirees. And uh, while I was still Sandinista, I I figured that it was healthy for any country's democracy to have uh, people protesting when they don't like a particular policy. So... I was in support of some of the marches and demonstrations until I began to hear that the Sandinista government had massacred students and that it had massacred peaceful protesters, And that just didn't seem right. Um, Given all the things that Nan has just said, um, it wasn't very congruent with the facts of the Sandinista government and all the programs and um, the the amazing achievements of the revolution um, in contrast to the... um, the accusations that were happening. And so I decided to uh, take a closer look at the claims and try to uh, verify some of the information that I was hearing. And one of the things that I came across was a, a report by Amnesty International, uh, which basically claimed that the government was conducting um, extrajudicial um, executions and that they were um, killing, uh, massacring students and that you know uh, they were suppressing media and that they were withholding uh, basic services to people from the opposition, allowing people to die and things like that. And so I began to actually try to corroborate some of the information that I was seeing from the amnesty report. And I found that even within the sources of the report itself, there were a lot of contradictions. Uh, For instance, the claim that doctors were not treating people from the opposition, doctors themselves actually came out saying that it was the opposite, that the government had issued a directive saying that everyone should be treated. Um, and just like that, I began to see a lot of more irregularities with the, uh, uh, the number of people that they were reporting killed and who those people were, a lot of um, hiding of information that was relevant to understanding the picture, um, such as the Sandinistas who were being killed, police officers who were being killed, Uh, regular uh, bystanders who were being killed in um, acts of protest that were being reported as peaceful and and civil. So I wrote a letter uh, from the perspective of not only Nicaraguan, but a former prisoner of conscience of Amnesty International protesting the role that Amnesty International was playing um, in the the effort to destabilize um, the, the Nicaraguan government and the uh, response that I received from the organization was very inadequate uh It basically amounted to a pamphlet uh, in which they basically said that they were politically unbiased and that uh, they they cared about the human rights of everyone regardless of their political affiliation um, and that you know they basically stood by their report. They at no point um, responded to any of the um, the criticisms of their reporting, the lack of rigor, the bias uh, that I pointed out, and I actually went point by point and explained why I had um, be- become really furious, really with um, the role that they were playing in the destabilization of the country, and they basically failed to provide any um, factual evidence uh, to support any of their claims, and so. Following that, I became active with this wonderful group of internationalists and solidarity people who, who you see here um, this very day on the screen. And we began to, um, to work um, on not just the, um, the, the instrumentalization of human rights as a way to destabilize countries, but also to look into uh, the history, the longer history of US intervention in Nicaragua and how it all made sense From a historical perspective and looking at the different actors that were involved, you basically realize that what is happening in Nicaragua is nothing more than history repeating itself. That a lot of the uh, human rights organizations that you're going to hear about from John, uh, who will follow me, um, have been basically playing the same role for many years. That a lot of the funding that we're seeing today uh, behind a lot of the destabilizing efforts in Nicaragua, uh, the funding organizations have also been. Active in destabilizing the Sandinista government for many years. Um, We also know, and I think that this is a very important point to make, that it's not just Amnesty International, it is the entire human rights industrial complex. Uh, The entirety of organizations of high prestige are basically instruments of US and UK foreign policy. Um, And one of the uh, chapters that if I do say so myself, is uh, very uh, uh, wonderful in highlighting a lot of this um, criticisms is the uh, chapter on basically how human rights organizations are being used to destabilize Nicaragua. And they include a chapter, I'm sorry, an article by Stephen Sefton, who is also um, one of the contributors to the book and uh, a very active member of our group. Uh, in which he basically provides a framework to understand how the main human rights organizations in the world are basically doing the same thing that they have been doing in Nicaragua throughout the world. And basically, uh, there are three main points. I mean, he highlights four, but I uh, sort of uh, merged the last two. Uh, But basically that there's a technical bias when it comes to organizations such as Human Rights Watch, uh, Amnesty International, the Organization of American States, Inter-American Human Rights Commission, Uh, all the way up to the uh, U.N. Office of the um, uh, High Commissioner for Human Rights, uh, that they are basically omitting uh, facts and sources that contradict what they're saying. And this is something that you can read in our report um, that basically debunks a lot of the things that Amnesty International has said about the Sandinista government and the crisis. Um, And the uh, documentation that they provide fails to provide any actual evidence. You know, there is absolutely no rigor in their investigation, but they are mainly uh, repeating a lot of the facts, uh, uncorroborated facts that are being cited by opposition, U.S.-funded and European-funded opposition organizations. Uh, The theoretical, uh, in theoretical terms also, um, they exclude anything and everything that is done by Uh, non-state actors, which is in direct contradiction of the 1993 Vienna Declaration of Human Rights, which basically states that uh, human rights violations uh, can be committed by um, other players, such as human rights organizations, uh, non-profit governmental organizations, faith-based organizations, media, etc. Yet a lot of these organizations, both at the local level and at the international level, have basically omitted um, anything that was done, any acts of violence or terrorism that have been committed by actors other than the government. And these actors, like I said before, are by and large actors that have been in collusion with the U.S. um, embassy and U.S. regime change agencies, such as USAID and NED, for many years. Basically, since the the beginning of NED, um, uh, perhaps John will touch on that, but since the beginning of NED, it has been uh, funding these organizations, these human rights groups, uh, including to, uh, to whitewash contra atrocities back in the 80s, uh, which by the way, were financed with money begotten through the sale of drugs in the African-American communities by the CIA. Um, and of course, the uh, weapon of arms to Iran during the, Iran contra- during the Iran-Iraq um, conflict. Um, lastly, um, it points out the corruption and the corporate links of these human rights organizations and shows how um, a lot of the uh, the reports uh, that are critical of what they call totalitarian regimes and, and uh, tyrannical regimes are basically progressive governments or either progressive governments or governments that do not align with neoliberal policies and that are not uh, NATO allies. And so this is not necessarily to say that all these governments are always acting in the best interests of their people, but it is to say that they're only, we, are, we can only expect to see Amnesty International, Human Rights Watch, and the likes of those groups uh, to be critical of governments that do not align with U.S. and U.K. policy. Um, all of us, I believe, have written chapters for or, or intros to chapters or articles for these books, and uh, the information is all contained there. It's very well sourced. Uh, we don't expect anyone to take our word for anything, but we provide sources and we provide evidence so that you can do your own research and that you can do your own fact-checking because human rights organizations are not doing it, and because of the power of their prestige, they're actually doing a lot more damage um, than, the, um, than the other actors um, that are behind uh, the destabilization of governments. Uh, So, I beg you to do your own research and to do some some of your own fact-checking, don't take our word for it. Um, We have taken taken a lot of time and effort to put together these resources for you to be able to to do your own uh, fact-finding and for you to form your own opinion. So I hope that you will do that. I believe that there was a report done or an article actually written by Gabriela Luna that talks about um, how students have been co-opted or student movements have been co-opted by uh, the likes of the U.S. Embassy, um, USAID and the National Endowment for Democracy. Uh, This is uh, an effort that goes back many years actually and that basically hones in on young people through universities um, that are basically trained uh, by U.S. um, Embassy personnel as well as by U.S. Uh, private university faculty members um, who go into um, colleges and universities in Nicaragua and they recruit young people uh, from there and um, basically um, do a lot of ideological uh, work with them um, in order to uh, turn them against the Sandinista government. Um, if, If you are interested in learning how regime change works, uh, you should read uh, From Dictatorship to Democracy by Gene Sharp. That's basically the blueprint for all regime change operations when it comes to soft cool or color revolution um, attempts. And uh, it basically talks about how uh, precisely to do uh, that type of work. Um, and if you look at some of the, uh, the imagery and the symbolism of uh, color revolutions and um, soft coup regime change operations, you know, going all the way back to the fall of the USSR in Eastern Europe, you're going to find a lot of the same symbols being used in places like Nicaragua and um, and Venezuela, as you as you saw in the old Yugoslavia and and some of the other color revolutions that took place there, uh, start, including like the um, the fist up in the air. And uh, some of the very same um, tactics, which include basically co-opting a lot of um, revolutionary um, war cries, uh, songs, um, symbols, and things like that, um, in order to basically capture the imagination and the idealism of young people. Uh, to basically turn them against the government when the government is not aligned with neoliberal policies. So I would actually, if you really want to go deep into this, I would say, you know, to read uh, from Dictatorship to Democracy by Gene Sharp, to be able to better understand um, how that process works and also to look into other regime change operations throughout the years, where you can see that a lot of the symbols and a lot of the, uh, the same tactics and strategies have been actually repeated in Nicaragua. Uh, the students uh, that were um, basically paraded through U.S. media in the U.S. met with the likes of Marco Rubio, Ted Cruz, um, Secretary of State Mike Pompeo. Um, So that alone should give you a measure of the level of um, U.S. involvement in the student movement in Nicaragua, that you have these people basically supporting a revolutionary movement led by students in Nicaragua when they would not do that here in the United States. Uh, the organizations that actually paid for these uh, delegations to the US so that these students could basically go on tour, basically, um, to gather support for the opposition, uh, included the Voice of America, you know, which basically has been involved in a lot of uh, regime change operations throughout the world, uh, were paid for by the National Democratic Institute, the Republican National Institute, the National Endowment for Democracy. So. I mean, if you can look at the history, you can look at the blueprint by Gene Sharp, you can make the political links, or you can make the financial links, um, and you can read this article, which I'm going to try to, to find, uh, to post it here, uh, that basically explain uh, explains exactly how this, 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 this takes place. Um, and then one last thing that I wanted to comment on something that was asked before, is that while the um, human rights organizations and the political organizations and the media and um, a lot of the different actors who were involved in the uh, the attempted coup in April of 2018 um, are in a state of complete disarray. And, you know, they're, they're falling apart more and more by the day and by the minute. Um, and you can actually see that. And, and it's almost a joke, a political joke in Nicaragua. Every time somebody comes out and criticizes their fellow opposition leaders, uh, the U.S. is not giving up on the opposition, and they have launched a whole new effort uh, called RAIN, which basically stands for Responsive Assistance in Nicaragua, and rather than funding all these other groups, they are actually contracting an organization called Democracy International, uh, basically to lead the efforts um, going into the 2021 election to destabilize the um, the, the, the Sandinista government and ensure that, um, that we lose at the polls. Um, and they have a series of steps that they are basically preparing to launch, which include nonviolent actions to foment unrest. This nonviolence, you know, you should read in quotation marks, uh, social and political struggle or hitting up the streets, uh, psychological war connected to natural disasters like the, uh, hurricanes or earthquakes and things like that, as well as health crises like the pandemic. Um, and then street protests uh, to demand that the president uh, steps down. Uh, and they foresee three scenarios, the op- an opposition victory, which is the least likely, and they, they know it. Um, also a sudden transition uh, as a result of a political crisis generated by uh, some shocking event, you know, like an earthquake or something like that, um, or a delayed transition, which is basically the soft-cool um, model you know, which is basically long-term, low and high-intensity tactics and strategies to overthrow the government. Um, So they have not given up. They're they're, they're switching gears, Uh, but we can can expect to see a lot more of this. And uh, this time around, they learned from their first uh, defeat, which was basically that when they uh, defeated the Sandinista party uh, in the 1990 elections, they basically did not realize that the Sandinista party had retained its, its base of support, its popular base. And so this time around, part of the uh, design includes to destroy Sandinismo as a political force, as a historical force, as a revolutionary force. And this is all written down. This, you, can write, you can read this, it's there. It was leaked uh, by the U.S. Embassy. Um and so and I'm gonna actually I'm going to put a link to that. And I do believe that maybe Nan wrote an article about it. So you should definitely check that out because it's not over and it's probably never going to be over. And we're going to be right back here next year with another book, with another webinar talking about, you know, what else they have done, what else they're up to.
1: This is Margaret Prescott, host of Sojourner Truth. We're
0: going to take a quick station break. When
1: we return. We will continue our special on U.S. unconventional warfare in Nicaragua. Please stay with us. We'll be right back.
2: This month marks the one-year anniversary of the COVID-19 pandemic, following a grim milestone of half a million deaths in the United States alone. As we learn more about the origins of COVID-19, the link between deforestation and public health has become clear. The destruction of wild ecosystems for human use through deforestation, logging, and industrial farming decreases biodiversity and impacts human health. The result, we are learning, is the emergence and spread of ever more new viruses. According to an essay published in the journal Science, the clear link between deforestation and virus emergence suggests that a major effort to retain intact forest cover would have a large return on investment, even if its only benefit was to reduce virus emergency events. Business as usual and the push to return to normal, however, wages on. The COVID-19 pandemic has brought to light the dangerous impacts of deforestation and given us an opportunity to prevent future pandemics. This is also an opportunity to recreate our relationship with nature, defend our environment and protect wild forests. For the Earth Minute and the Sojourner Truth Show, this is Teresa Church from Global Justice Ecology Project.
1: Welcome back to Sojourner Truth. Check us out on our website on sojourneradio.org. If you're on Facebook, you can look for us and like us on Facebook. We're also on SoundCloud. You can go to the search bar and type in Sojourner Truth with Margaret Prescott to find us. And today, we'd like to give a shout out to our SoundCloud listeners in Atlanta, Georgia. And internationally, we'd like to give a shout out to our SoundCloud listeners in the island nation of Dominica. Now. We return to our special on U.S. unconventional warfare in Nicaragua. During the second half of today's program, you will hear a presentation by John Perry. John is a longtime investigator, writer and resident of Nicaragua. He delivered his remarks during a recent webinar hosted by the Alliance for Global Justice. Let's hear from him now.
3: Thank you, Camila, for your excellent introduction to this subject um i'm going to talk about um the violence here and how the local human rights bodies have manipulated the facts about the the violence and how they create anti-sandinista propaganda so uh, in a way a little bit like camilo i i was confused right at the start of this in in april 2018 i was in the uk when the violence began here i came back Quite quickly and got back here at the end of April, and was still feeling confused about what was going on and whether the government had, had overreacted. And then at the, in early May, I took part in a, a peace demonstration in Masaya, which was led by the local by local Sandinistas. And this peace demonstration was met with hails of stones uh, by opposition groups and it was obvious that this was organised because there, were, there, were, there, was, there was a barrage of, of stones thrown at us and several people were hurt. Um, so that was my first indication that really this was, uh, this was not about peaceful protest and it very very quickly became obvious from the scale of the violence especially in Masaya that it was about trying to overthrow the government. I'm not going to talk in detail about the the full panorama of the of the incidents but i want to set the context by saying by talking about the, the numbers that were killed um, there were various estimates about the numbers killed during the, the demonstrations and events of, of those three or four months uh, the final government death toll was 253 of which in fact only about 30 were known supporters of the opposition 22 were police and 42 were known Sandinista supporters. But of course, the human rights bodies put the total at much higher than this. I mean, uh, figures of of over 300 are commonly mentioned. One of the human rights bodies actually put the total up to 561, with supposedly 4,500 people injured. And in fact, only recently, the um, uh, Inter-American Commission of Human Rights has said that there would there be one, over 1,600 political prisoners in, in Nicaragua, which was completely ridiculous. So there's been this pattern of exaggerating numbers right from the start. I'm going to focus on the four local so-called human rights bodies. The CPDH, the, the Permanent Commission on Human Rights, that was set up in the 1970s. senid the Nicaraguan Centre of Human Rights, which was set up in 1990. ANPdh, which was set up in the nineteen eighties, originally in Miami, and the newest, Sehoud Khan, which was set up in two thousand and three on the Atlantic coast. So, looking first at CPdh, this was um, this appeared when it was when it was set up in the nineteen seventies to be an honest human rights organisation that was looking into the uh, human rights abuses of the Somoza dictatorship before or during the course of the Sandinista revolution but as soon as the uh, Sandinista government was was established in 1979 uh, it began accusing the Sandinistas of of human rights abuses and t- uh, disappearances extrajudicial du- executions and in in fact it was including in its figures um soldiers who were killed Fighting the Contra, Sandinista soldiers fighting the Contra, um, as if they'd been killed by the government, and ignoring atrocities by the Contra themselves. And even at this stage, it was being cited; these figures were being cited by Amnesty International. And at that stage, um, Human Rights Watch, or America's Watch as it was in those days, was accusing it of being biased in in, in its treatment of. Um, the, what the Sandinistas were doing. It started, of course, getting money from the National Endowment for Democracy and has continued getting money from the US government in different forms up till recently when it got $800,000 from USAID. Human Rights Watch now uh, approves of the CPDH. Public officials repeatedly make stigmatizing statements to undermine the credibility of human rights defenders, like CPDH, says Human Rights Watch these days we had an incident in July last year when the lawyer um, Maria Oviedo um, was in Masaya defending Christian Fajardo Christian Fajardo was a political leader of the opposition in Masaya during that period of violence in 2018 in this photograph you can see him on the day when messiah supposedly declared independence it lasted for one day before the police moved in um and he was leading the violence not just leading the political protest but leading the violence and in fact when on this the day when this incident took place in july 2019 the police had found him with an unregistered weapon and uh, he had been taken to the police station and Maria Oviedo managed to hit a police officer in the police station she was herself temporarily arrested but Oviedo and CPDH defend people like Fajardo without taking any interest at all in the human rights abuses that they've actually carried out themselves and here's an example of one Um, these two people are um, not exactly friends of mine but I know them quite well Um, they were Part of uh, the force defending one of the few municipal uh, buildings that still stood in Masaya in, in, in early June 2018 because the rest had been set on fire. Um, and on this day, the 3rd of June, the municipal depot was attacked and ransacked. Ten workers were kidnapped and hauled away and beaten up. And two of them, the two in the photograph, Pito and El Celli, were severely beaten. Um, El Celle on the right-hand side so badly that his uh, left arm had to be amputated. Um, He was literally spread-eagled on the ground and um, the opposition gangs stamped and beat his arm until he lost the use of it and he had to be amputated uh, a few days later. Moving on to ANPDH. Um, This was set up in the Miami with three million dollars from the Reagan administration and was there really to hide the human rights violations of uh, President Reagan's Contra forces. It's now held by, it's now headed by Alvaro Leyva and he's been uh, an integral part of the opposition's violent coup attempt and his job has been to hide the human rights violations now of the opposition, violent gangs, rather than uh, Reagan's contra forces. And they became famous for their exaggerated claims on the numbers of deaths. So at one point, um, they claimed there would be over 480 deaths, of which 455 were listed as homicides. And you can see the rather ridiculous differences they made to um, in describing those, the, the makeup of those figures. And this was all called into question um, last year when, or it was called into question originally by um, a Sandinista investigator, Enrique Hendricks, who found that a lot of their deaths couldn't be explained at all. And then last year, um, there was a, a split within the ANPDH and one of their senior staff, Gustavo Bermudez, who uh, um, had obviously badly fallen out with Labour described how labor had inflated the death toll. And he, uh, he said that uh, a friend of his had, fi- had found that his grandmother's name uh, was in this list of uh, characters who had been assassinated by the Sandinista government, and she'd actually died of a heart attack. And labor was accused of um, stealing money that had come from the US um, to assist ANPDH. And in fact, um, Gustavo Bermúdez, Showed this slide um, saying where the money had come from and the 443 thousand uh, dollars that Labour was unable to account, uh, unable to account for, and presumably had uh, got himself. Um, there was a terrible incident in Masaya in July 2018, only a few days before outside of Masaya was relieved by the police forces. A police officer was captured and, and uh, tortured, badly tortured, for 24 hours. His name was Gabriel de Jesus Vado Ruiz. And when I when I passed the spot where this happened and where his body was left at uh, the barricades, uh, I, I remember this incident every time. And Leva was found scooping the remains of his body, which had been set on fire, into plastic bags. With a, a local Catholic priest in order to try to hide the evidence. Moving on to Senate, um the central center Centro Nicaragüense de Derechos Humanos. This was founded by ex sandinista Vilma Nuñez in 1990. Was initially funded by European uh, bodies. Now gets U.S. money. It's split its director gonzalo carrion tried to open a new ngo in fact he has opened a new ngo in costa rica and he was denied support by ex-colleagues who thought that he would pocket the money and he's certainly doing well in costa rica um, and here he is at another terrible incident um, in 2018 a horrific house fire that took place on june the 16th in uh, the Karl marx barrio in managua which killed six people including two very young children. And it was immediately blamed on the Sandinista government. And miraculously, Carrion was was there within minutes of the the fire happening. And he whisked away the survivors from this family, uh, who later explained that they felt that they'd been effectively kidnapped because they weren't weren't allowed to use their, their cell phones, and they weren't allowed to give their versions of the story and in fact since then um uh, they have given their ver- their versions of the story including a young woman who was very badly burned in the fire and they've explained how it was opposition groups that actually carried the fire out and here we have another example of senate was being one of the leading groups to defend political prisoners so-called political prisoners that had been arrested because of the violence in 2018 one of these was somebody called Jason Castro-Ortez, who'd been sentenced to 13 years for for robbery and organised crime. He was released in one of the amnesties, one of the several amnesties that the government has has held. And then he murdered his girlfriend in January 2020, stabbing her three times in the neck. And after this happened, the right-wing press here actually blamed the government for releasing him, even though it his release had been demanded because supposedly he was one of the political prisoners. And then finally Sehub Khan on the Atlantic coast, set up more recently by ex-Sandinista Lottie Cunningham Wren, uh, one of a mosquito family in Bilwe, which is uh, except for her, uh, still strongly Sandinista. She's just been awarded the Right Livelihood Award, in fact I saw that she featured on Democracy Now! a few days ago. And she represents Miskitu people as persecuting and and suffering ethnocide and features in that article, which Barbara mentioned, that's just been published in in Fair. But many Miskitu leaders denounce her for misusing violence incidents and misrepresenting them. Here was an example of one, uh, the most recent one, where allegedly this girl was shot in the face By violent settlers who were trying to send a message to the local Indigenous community that they wanted them to leave their forest community. Um, When police investigated, they found her wound was a result of an accident. One of her family members, a young young guy, had let off a gun and injured her in the face. But Tehub Khan has dramatised the situation of the minority Indigenous groups on the Atlantic coast and really it's been a way both the second and for the other human rights bodies to get us money i mean they they dramatize these situations they exaggerate the violence they blame all of the violence on the government they very good at uh, publicizing what they're doing Um, they get links to left-wing and progressive media in the united states and europe and they get funds from us aid from other branches of the u.s government and this keeps them going um, and here we have some examples of the U.S. funding um, that were exposed earlier this year. Um, and at that time, CPDH, ANPDH, and Senate were all getting large amounts of U.S. aid funding, apart from any money they may be getting from NED and other U.S. government bodies. Here we have a cartoon um, showing how U.S. aid, in effect. Um, give sustenance to terrorism and the sort of mafia that uh, uh, promotes violence in countries like nicaragua i want to just finish by by mentioning briefly another horrific incident that took place that had almost no coverage by the human rights organizations and this was in morito in july 2018 when a caravan of so-called policeful peaceful protests protesters entered the town and started shooting at the town hall and the police station they killed four police and they kidnapped uh, nine others um, who were eventually released after they were badly beaten and this was organized by somebody who's now become um, a human rights figurehead medardo mirena and his colleague pedro mena and they were arrested um, at managua um, airport trying to leave the country for the us uh, the following day the the local media portrayed this actually as a violent incident caused by the police, and they showed this picture of supposedly a, a protester who had been killed by the police. In fact, this this poor guy is a is an Honduran uh, protester um, uh, protesting against the coup in Honduras against Mel Zelaya, and has got nothing to do with Nicaragua at all. So when uh, Myrino and Pedro Mena were arrested and taken to court. Um, there was ample proof that, they'd, uh, done the, um, that they were the coordinators of the crime. For example, from their WhatsApp messages. Uh, this, is, this is just one of many, many that were found on their phones as they were leaving the airport uh, and their, their phones were confiscated. But all of this was ignored by the local uh, human rights organisations who started to portray Morena as a victim of government persecution and as a kind of hero. And um, this was picked up by the media, of course. The BBC did a whole story about how Myrena had been condemned to more than 200 years in prison um, and gave no credibility to um, the government version of events. And In fact, never asked who committed the crimes in Morito if it wasn't Myraena and Pedro Mena. And of course, we've seen the human rights organizations internationally take up the same message. Here's one of them. This is, this is from um, uh, frontline defenders in in the Republic of Ireland. And here medardo Moreno's presented again as a hero. You can send messages of solidarity to him as if he's still in prison, which of course he isn't, because he's now campaigning to be a presidential candidate in the election next year. So. Here we have um, three of the four organizations meeting the US ambassador, um, no doubt to talk about the next tranche of funding that they might be getting. And if you want to read the truth about what's going on, pay no attention to what they're saying and do read our book. We've been surprised, very pleasantly surprised at how Nicaragua's re- returned to being the, uh, the safest country in Central America. I, I, I won't say it's completely as it was, before April 2018, but it's certainly a good deal of the way there. Um, we've in Masaya we've had some violent incidents, not in the not this year, but last year we had several bomb explosions, uh, bombs set off by the opposition, at, usually at night time in places where they wouldn't directly affect people, but they were they were they were set off in order to remind people the opposition was still around. And in December 2019, there was um, a horrible incident where the police were um, asked to go to a house where a robbery was taking place. And it was a setup and a police officer was killed and another was injured. The, the criminals escaped and then they themselves were trapped in a roadblock the following day and they, they were shot. But before they, they were, well, one of them was shot. And I think the other was captured. Before this happened, they killed another police officer. But since that violent event in December 2019, which was a kind of hangover from the violence in 2018, I suppose, and involved some of the same people. No, there hasn't been any violence in in Masaya. And in the rest of Nicaragua, things have been largely very peaceful indeed. I think people, basically, people are very, very fed up of the violence, even those who were anti-Sandinista to some extent in 2018 just hated that experience of, of being trapped in their home, scared to go out, and um, worried about um, what was happening to friends who were pro-Sandinista, who were, who were you know, under threat of their houses being burnt down or being kidnapped or even being shot in that period. It had a traumatic effect on people, even those who weren't sympathetic to the Sandinista government at the time.
1: We're out of time. I'd like to thank all of the speakers featured in today's show, as well as the Alliance for Global Justice for allowing us to share this audio with you. I would also like to thank the Sojourner Truth team, Romero Funes, our assistant producer, and today's audio engineer. If you'd like a copy of today's show, you can contact the Pacifica Radio Archives at 1-800-735-0230 or go online to PacificaRadioArchives.org. Remember to visit our website at SoTrueRadio.org and follow us on Facebook or Twitter and Instagram. Our handle is at SoTrueRadio. Thank you for listening. This is your host, Margaret Prescott, and y'all please stay safe.
0: The previous program on KPFK was pre recorded.